You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Okay, everyone, it's uh, we're back with uh, another episode of Faith and Other Oddities. It's the moment that all the feminist scholars have been waiting for. <laughs> um, it is Judges chapter four. Yeah, we're going to start with a narrative here in four. Yep, starting with Deborah and... Uh, Yael. It, well, we get to Yael, but it starts with Deborah and Barack. Right, so. right, yeah. But you, you did bring up, this is, uh, the feminists have been waiting for this. Um, I want to make two points before we jump in, uh, and I wasn't planning on this, so if it's inarticulate, just roll with me. Uh, number one, uh, when I started studying this, I realized what a hot-button issue or passage this is because all the articles for this are behind paywalls. Um, the academic journals and databases have realized that they can make money on this topic. It's in demand. And uh, the books talking about it, most of them are actually pretty pricey because, again, it's in demand. Mm-hmm. And the, the feminist theologians are really picking up on this and they're really using it to support their ideologies. Uh, of course, there's a lot of pushback from the more traditional scholars. Now, I kind of, as usual, I take a middle road on all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to stick with the text and not read too much in it, into it. Of course, completely doing away with my bias is impossible. Yeah, yeah, no one's bias-free. But I will acknowledge that I do have the bias, and I will try to to entertain other ideas. The second thing, when we talk about feminist theology, we are not talking about feminism as a political movement. Right. We're talking about reading this from a female perspective. And actually, the Bible does lend itself to that. Um, matter of fact, Block points out very nicely that when we read chapter four, we're looking at the world's view of women at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we go back and read chapter five, we're looking at the women's view of the world. So mm. we have this nice little compare and contrast that's going on in the scripture. So it lends itself to feminist theology. And I want to make that distinction between feminist theology and feminism as a political movement. Right. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. So those of you not familiar with, uh, <laughs> with the story of Deborah, um, hopefully you read it before we got into it. Um, but if you haven't, you know, feel free to, you know, this is a podcast. You can stop it. We'll be here. <laughs> Feel free to go read it and come back. We're going to summarize because I don't like listening to people read long amounts of text, so I'm not going to do that to you <laughs> as much as we can avoid it. Now, if we have to, to, you know, for sake of specific wording, then we'll get into some stuff. But um, for those of you not familiar um, with how this goes, of course, it starts with how all these great stories and judges start, you know, and the people <laughs> of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So we have a mentioned. Back to the previous So we have a story. chronology there. Yeah. So we've got that going on. So basically, uh, land on the scene with Deborah. She's one of the judges. She's also uh, noted as a prophetess, and she would prophesy and judge under the as the oak of Deborah or uh, yes, palm palm uh, of Deborah. Palm of Deborah. That's the oaks of weeping. The palm of Deborah. Mm-hmm. That's where we got. Okay. So so anyway, <laughs> <laughs> don't you love this? It's like so anyway. Uh, so we're we're uh, we find Deborah, and she is. Um, Consulted by Barack about well, she sends or, for Barack. She sends for Barack and tells him, "Hey, it's time for you to go take mm-hmm. out the uh, who was suppressing them at this time." I can't uh, remember. This is the Canaanites, I believe. The, the Canaanites. So she's like, "Okay, it's time for you to get off your butt and go take care of this guy." <laughs> and he says, "I don't want to." And <laughs> so this is paraphrasing, obviously. The gospel according to Nathan. <laughs> uh, well, we'll get there eventually. Uh, so he says, "I don't want to." She says, "Well, you gotta." And he says, I'll do, it. I'll do it if you go with me. I mean, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny. So, and she says, okay, well, in that case, the victory is not going to be yours, but it's going to be given into the hands of a woman. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the first time you read this, you obviously think that she's talking about herself, that she's going to have the death blow of whatever king they're after. So, right. well, uh, uh, Cis- Cicera. Cis- Cicera. And she's the general for it, Jabin. Yes. So anyway, so what happens? They go into battle. Cicera's on the run. He gets tired. 
goes into the tent of Jael or Yael, depending on how you pronounce it. I like Yael. It's, it, it's a better name. It sounds a little better. Um, in my mind, I don't know why, but it's a little smoother sounding, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says, I'm thirsty. Give me some water. She instead gives him goat milk, which would be you know, warm goat milk after you've been running. He goes to sleep. She drives a tent peg through his head. Through his head into the ground. Into the ground. Um, you know, if you're going to do something, <laughs> do, do it, it right. right. <laughs> and so, <laughs> no, isn't this fun? Yeah. Um, the, uh, and then they go and they find, they're going, they're looking for him. And Yael's like, no, he's over here. <laughs> right. And he's, not, and he's not going anywhere. <laughs> Got him. Yeah. So, um, so that's basically the, the summary of, of the events. Right. Um, weird story um don't drink goat milk on the hot day i think that is the i think that's the moral of the story actually well that's one of the many morals that can be drawn from the story uh yeah this this passage um this is just crazy uh because it has garnered so much attention there has been a lot of time spent trying to to pin down specific details and dating uh so I think first off, we want to, I want to begin with the fact that we have the same story told twice. We have the same story told in chapters four and chapter five. One is in prose, just plain narrative. The other one's in poetry. Mm-hmm. And so there's only one other place in the Bible that this happens. And that's in Exodus uh, 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. This is whenever they cross the Red Sea. So we have the, the prose, the narrative account, and then... Moses sings a song and we have this poetic account that's going on. So this is significant. And we're going to be talking about why that's significant. Um, but because we have these two different accounts, then of course we have a debate, right? Uh, we have the debate on which one's more accurate. We have the debate on which one came first. Was there a poem that or the, the a song of Deborah as the, as the, the scriptures call it, was that written first? And then writers went back and, and, wrote the narrative constructed the story mm-hmm. yeah or was the narrative written first and then the story written and then the song written there's real no conclusive evidence either way um but it does provide for some interesting speculation on this why they're different right because if we think that most bible writers were male then we have um we have a definite way of viewing the narrative versus the song as being from that male perspective. And, you know, they're going to emphasize different points that Deborah, the prophetess, the woman, isn't going to, to emphasize. Sure. So uh, today we're just going to be looking at the narrative and some, some background. Um, now, but like I said, I want to contrast that kind of with the, the poem and I want to set you up with that because uh, with what that looks like, because this is one of the oldest parts of the Bible. The, the song of Deborah, we, we know for a fact that the blessing of Jacob, which we talked about that in our Genesis series, that's Genesis 49, mm-hmm. the song of the sea, which is Exodus 15, that's Moses' song about crossing the Red Sea, mm-hmm. the oracles of Balaam in Numbers 23 through 24, mm-hmm. and the blessing of Moses in Deuteronomy, um, the end of there, that these are the oldest parts of the Bible. Okay. So this makes Deborah's song highly significant from a theological perspective mm-hmm. is actually one of the first declarations of monotheism. And before this, we don't have any other writing about monotheism. Um, and even the song of the sea and Balaam's writings, they, they hint at it, right. but they don't just flat out uh, declare it. We think that possibly her song was preserved in a guild of prophets. We have that spoken about in the Bible, mm-hmm. that there were groups of prophets who preserved prophecy through the ages. So even if the narrative wasn't preserved, the, the prophetic word would have been preserved. That's interesting. Okay, so you talk about the guild of prophets. I mean, you probably aren't, mm-hmm. I, I, you probably aren't prepared to just talk <laughs> about them. But no, that's, that's very interesting because um, that one of their jobs was to preserve the prophecies. Mm-hmm. So this would have been a song that this, they would have been teaching other to, each other to sing these songs mm-hmm. in order to preserve truth. Yes. In order to preserve God's word and in, in, in order to preserve teaching. Absolutely. And so I think that's kind of interesting because right? that idea of, of teaching these and singing these songs 
it we, we've kind of come a long way from that because you know i was always told and, and there may be an aspect to this that uh you know in a lot of the church i've been in the the guild of prophets was you know they were teaching each other how to prophesy right and I've always been a bit iffy about that because <laughs> I've never really considered it to be something like, you know, especially when you look at the Old Testament prophet stuff, it's like, you know, I mean, do you really want to sign up for that? Uh, no, <laughs> no one did. And, and that's the thing. No one today. It's become OK. Rabbit trail. Today, it's become <laughs> so popular to to. Oh, I'm a prophet for God. And, you know, I have people on Facebook who their names oh, prophet so and so prophet so prophetess so and so. Nobody in the Old Testament signed up for this. Right. And, and in fact, they, they tried to get out of it. Moses wasn't the only one. Uh, you know, the burning bush, he, he, he gives all of these excuses, you know, why he can't be a prophet. Mm-hmm. And then you turn around and you go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he gets really graphic and he says, first you seduced me and then you raped me. And this is how he records his experience of being called to the prophetic realm. Mm-hmm. And so being a prophet, no, this, this was not good. And matter of fact, in Saul, and when we get to Samuel, we'll talk about this. But when Saul prophesies, you know, he goes to uh, Samuel and Samuel tells him to go look for the donkeys at a certain place. And he winds up falling in with a group of traveling prophets, mm-hmm. that guild of prophets. And um, the, the people ridiculed him what, is Saul now among the prophets? I mean, it's, it, the idea was, can somebody from a really good family, from this great background that Saul's from, can he really be a prophet? Mm. Because prophets operate at the fringe of society. Right. They, they do not operate in the mainstream. So, yes, it, it's not something people hoped for, and it's not something they wanted to be a part of. Yeah. So I think possibly, you know, when we are talking about this um, prophetic guild, we're, we're talking about people who may have been prophets themselves, but we are talking more of a preservation society. Sure. And, you know, this goes back, it would have been totally normal in these kind of cultures, which before the written word were very oral, tradition, relatable. Mm-hmm. And so they would have been teaching these as oral traditions and training people to remember them. And yeah. we know that this led to phenomenal feats of memory that uh, exceed what a lot of people can recall today. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about it, it was something you practice a lot. I mean, think about mm-hmm. how many phone numbers we used to have memorized before right. we had cell phones. Now, now I, I don't remember my own. <laughs> now, Yeah, now I can barely remember any phone numbers, but when you're practicing remembering these numbers, and how did you do that? You had a rhythm. Yeah. Da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da, da-da. It was actually the formulation of the phone number uh, was based on studies that told what what pattern of numbers people remembered best right so yeah that's not surprising (laughs) but i mean and the other thing and uh, is i want to talk about was again the songs for education and remembering and preserving god's word and truth and and i don't want to get too much on this rabbit trail (laughs) because we've got a whole show planned and right you know you might get some bonus material and but (laughs) the um you know so many songs nowadays in and, you know, people can say I'm just a curmudgeonly old guy who <laughs> doesn't like the way the new kids play music. Uh, I don't think that's entirely true. But uh, so many of the worship songs today seem like they're set to create an atmosphere and, mm-hmm. and, and lure you into a certain mood. And it's more about that. They're constructed more that way as opposed to actually engaging our brain to get us to think something. Right. And so... Um, I've written a book on it that we're getting close <laughs> to the end on. Hopefully that'll be out soon. Um, Books take so much longer than anybody realizes. <laughs> much longer than a podcast. Um, so anyway, um, that's a <laughs> right. That that's the other thing I wanted to throw out there. It was just the way you were talking about it. I was like, well, that makes a lot of sense because um, it, it doesn't seem like there's a quick and easy way to teach prophecy. Right. And definitely not a formula. And I think if we go too far in that, then we wind up doing witchcraft and that's dangerous ground to, to tread. Um, and, but there, there's significance in that. If this guild of prophets preserved Deborah's song, mm-hmm. the fact that they are teaching a woman's words mm-hmm. to male prophets mm-hmm. to be remembered there that's highly significant. Well, and, that's, that's, that's a great <laughs> place of honor in Israel's history. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we need to remember, too, that as we're going through this, 
you know, so often when we teach Deborah, at least when I've encountered it, it's been at women's Bible studies. It's been uh, presented as a standalone. It's not in the context of a study of judges. It's very rarely, well, we rarely teach judges as a book. And so being able to look at this in context, we are forced to translate and interpret the words that are used in each of the stories the same way. This is how we do good exegesis and theological work. We cannot impose a separate meaning for words upon Deborah's story that is different from Samson's or Gideon's or Othniel's. We have to be consistent Mm -hmm. because the writer was consistent. And if we fail to do that, then we're doing a disservice to the Bible. Yeah. Well, and and I think this kind of idea too of of preserving the actions or or the words of a woman, you know, Jesus Mm -hmm. even does the same kind of thing when he talks about, um, the, the woman who was, uh, who's washing his feet Mm -hmm. and, and everyone kind of chides Jesus for letting her be there. And he's like, yeah, he's like, no, um, no. And, and in fact, you know, her story is going to be preserved wherever, uh, wherever you're preaching Mm -hmm. in my name, Mm -hmm. you're going to tell her story too. Right. And so I think that's a really interesting, uh, parallel there. Uh, when you're talking about like her having a place of honor in the Jewish history, right? And then we have this other woman who, who has a place of honor in yes. in church history. And, and okay, if coming from my perspective as a woman, the fact that in the middle of these patriarchal societies that these women are so honored, that is actually more telling than if women were just equally valued as men. Mm-hmm. If their words were given the same, and their words and actions were given the same weight. So the fact that these women's words were elevated and their actions were elevated to this point of honor, this tells you something about God's value for women. So I, and I think we need to make that distinction. Just because society or our culture may not value a woman like we have in the Bible sometimes, mm. God is constantly moving on behalf of the women. And we need to keep, we need to keep saying that. We, I don't think we can repeat that enough given the fact that um, there's so much just garbage said about the Bible and God when it comes to his dealings mm-hmm. with women. Mm-hmm. And so... Well, well, and you're talking about the, how women are honored in the middle of these patriarchal societies. And you were talking about like if their words were just equal to men, but even, even uh, you know, there's, there's kind of this idea that, that in order to lend credibility to what we believe, we need to emphasize our similarities to other beliefs and religions. And... Um, and it's not true because if you look at all the societies outside of of Israel and outside of Christianity where these women are given these high places of honor, then <laughs> it contrasts and yeah. it goes beyond, like you said, just being equal. These women, they're not just equal to how women outside of Israel were treated because how are they treated outside of Israel in these patriarchal oppressive societies? Right. They're actually elevated. Yeah. And, and so again, that's, you know, that's not, you can't just generalize all of it, but the way they're portrayed in the Bible, it's actually, when you literally read the text, it's actually very positive in most cases. Well, and judges, one of the things you're going to find, the abuse of women is the result of sin. Mm -hmm. The abuse of women is the result of turning away from the covenant relationship with God. It's never within the covenant relationship. And it's always presented as being the repercussion of this failure to obey and love God. Mm -hmm. The other thing about societies outside of um, Judaism at this point, what we're looking at, you know, there's a lot of talk today and again, rabbit trail, I'm sorry, but this, this fits in with what you said about, you know, mother earth, the earth Gaia, goddess Gaia. Mm -hmm. um, And Oh, these, these ancient societies revered women. They revered the power that women had, but they tried to harness it. Mm -hmm. And so these women weren't necessarily elevated and given freedom and given responsibility. They were actually used as temple prostitutes. Mm -hmm. They um, faced a lot of sexual abuse and they they were tools. They were Mm -hmm. not, you know, they were not valued as a person. And where in Judaism, we have individual women celebrated. Because when you go back and you read other ancient texts and when it's talking about women, you are not going to find so many individual names of women mm-hmm. doing such important events. And, you know, that's a huge distinction. So, yeah, we have the compare and contrast of uh, of Judaism and other religions. 
we can't say that because they had a female goddess, they were treating women better. Right. Well, and and that's actually a, it parallels with what we were talking about with the Oracle at Delphi mm-hmm. or Delphi. Del- right. Uh, She's where where you can't name any of those women. Right. But the women in the Bible <laughs> who are honored and remembered, almost all of them are, are named and not all of them, but a good number a good of them. portion of them. And that that is a huge distinction. And it's not the woman who's valued. It, it's what she can do. Mm-hmm. And so in the other religion, in the other religion. Mm-hmm. And that's what um, I think it makes Judaism so hopeful. And I think we forget that it's the Judeo-Christian cultures that have actually led to the liberation of women. And it's only in the Judeo-Christian cultures um, that or the cultures that have been influenced by the Judeo-Christian ethic that have allowed for feminism to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and you know, look at any other country um, today that has not embraced the Judeo-Christian ethic women's rights are not there. Right. And so, right. I mean, and, and to the, to the point even where uh, some cultures have uh, different dialects for men and women, like your, mm-hmm. their language is actually divided right. among what men can, like the literal language men can speak in a literal language, like the actual language women can speak. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, Again, okay, so uh, <laughs> that was a long, long, rabbit, long trail. rabbit trail. So let's talk about Deborah a little bit. Okay, just a little bit. Um, no, so I, we begin with, with verse one, like you were saying, that you know they did what was wrong in the sight of God, and Ehud had died. Now, our last judge was or deliverer was not Ehud, it was Shamgar. Right. And so... Um, I still think of whatever hair his name is, like Shamgar. Like, like, <laughs> you want to kind like of... Like a superhero, like... <laughs> Sorry. So yeah, so he he was uh, a savior, but he was not a governing official. This kind of reinforces that idea. Uh, Le- Ehud was the leader of the people. Mm-hmm. He's the one that the the peace appeared under. So I kind of looking back, and the reason we're doing this is to kind of give you the the context. Ehud's died. The peace is no longer there, uh, and it also kind of reinforces what we said about these two guys in previous episodes. Um, and also, you know, the idea that Shamgar might have been uh, added later. So the Lord sells them into the hand of the king of Canaan. And uh, we, we have our introduction uh, to, to Sisera. Um, well, Sisera and Jabin, they live at Hazor. Uh, this is a, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a fortified city in the territory of Naphtali. And Naphtali is going to be the main fighting force in this battle. And um, Hazor is about 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So if you're looking for it on a map, that's, that's where you're going to find it. Jabin is probably not a personal name. It's probably a title. Okay. Because Joshua had defeated another Jabin about 100 years before this. Uh, Sisera, it's not a Canaanite name. Once again, we're looking at, the, he's probably a Hurian, like when we talked about Shamgar Ben-Anath. So there's a connection there. Um, If it's not Hurian, then it is from the Sea People. And we're still trying to figure out uh, exactly where he came from. But we, the point is, he's not connected to either the Canaanites or the Jews. He is a mercenary. He was hired for his military ability. And that was Sisera? Sisera. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And so he's going to be our, our, um, our big player here in a little bit. Um, Harasheth uh, Hagoyim, we really don't know what this means. Uh, it's, it's the city of... Is that, then that's not the same word for, for Goyim. Like, it is, is actually. It? Okay. It, it is. Um, it, so one of the possible translations, good job picking that up, uh, is Hagoyim, or the I, nations. I pay attention sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's the nations, or, or the word we know as Gentiles. Yeah. So Harasheth, this is the part that we're we're kind of fuzzy on it can mean cultivated fields so it can be the fields of the of the goyim or the mm-hmm. fields of the gentiles yeah okay so it could be that but in hebrew we also have something called a pejorative pointing <laughs> okay so this means that basically they have changed the vowel points okay and they've taken something positive and through okay, the I vowel okay. points they have made it negative so it could mean this. It, it's like making fun of someone's name. Yes. It's okay. Our yeah. last name, Underwood. Underwood. <laughs> How many times did we hear underwear growing up? Too it, many it, to count. The Bible 
is actually kind of immature in places. <laughs> right. It's what you're saying. Exactly. And we're, you know, and this is this is the thing. What what is really going on here? And God loves poop jokes. He's making fun of people's names. <laughs> yeah. Because so. the opposite meaning could be forested areas. So instead of the city of the cultivated fields, it can be the forested areas, which if you're an agrarian society, forested areas are places of neglect. Mm -hmm. And they're places that have not been taken care of. So now I do like Rabag, who is one of the, the rabbis. I've mentioned him before. He says that it means craftsmen of the nation. Okay. Okay. Now I like this because if we're talking craftsmen of the nation, we're, when we're talking craftsmen at this point, we're talking about weapons of war. Mm -hmm. We're talking about uh, cosmetics. We're talking about art, which at this point would have been used in uh, religious ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're getting back to that watchers Genesis six connection. And that kind of plays in because we're talking about a place for the Canaanite Kings and the Canaanites. These are the parasites, the, um, Zuzim, the, all of the Eames that yeah. we mentioned in Genesis 15, who were connected with the Rephaim and the Nephilim. So, um, and we're going to, this, this idea of craftsmen is going to come up again. So the people, of the Lord, you know, like Nathan said, they cried out and because they've been oppressed by this Canaanite King Jabin for 20 years. And it says specifically the reason why he is oppressing them is because he has 900 iron chariots. Mm -hmm. And Sorry, now, I left that part out. Yeah, it's a little detail. But, okay, so first off, this cry for help, it's not repentance. And I think we have to keep going back. There's a, there's a different word for repentance, crying out in repentance, and just, I'm hurting, I need help. Mm -hmm. And, and this is where they are. And once again, we're connected to the Exodus 2 moment where God hears the groaning of the people. Mm -hmm. And so we, we want to keep that in mind. Well, I, I, I mean, you talked about earlier, I mean, you've mentioned mm -hmm. a few times that God's very uh, paternal in this. You know, yes. He acts a lot like a father. And the, you know, those of us who have kids know that even if you just told your kid not to do something and they fall down <laughs> right. and they break their arm... <laughs> you're going to go to them. Right. You're, you know, because they're crying out in pain and it's, and you know, that's the thing it's, you know, but at the same time, you know, we would have preferred they were, they would have not done that thing, mm -hmm. but we're not going to just abandon them because, well, we're not going to leave you out there with a broken arm <laughs> because, well, I told you not to be up there. Now I might tell them that after we get them patched up, <laughs> like maybe we need to learn a lesson here not to do that again. But I think that also kind of speaks to the character of God, that he, he will go to us when we're hurting, regardless of how we got hurt. Absolutely. I think that's a great, great illustration for that point, because the, throughout Judges, this is what we see. God saying, I've given you a, a punishment, and in the middle of it, you've been hurt, but I'm, so I'm still going to take care of you. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we know they're oppressing for tw been oppressed for 20 years. This is the longest period of oppression in the book of Judges. So the, the idea that Jabin could control Canaan for this long. And now remember, when we're talking the oppression of Canaan, we aren't just talking about the oppression of the Israelites. We're talking about the oppression of everyone in that area. Sure. So. Well, because Naphtali, it, the land, that land's up on the north end. Mm -hmm. It's kind of it's, it's out on the edge. It, it is. It is. And that, that's going to be important. Um, now, the thing to, that's thing that I find interesting about this, and I went back and I looked, these long periods of oppression, they're always, always ended by one thing, and it's the action of the women. The oppression in, in Egypt, the, the beginning of freedom is the midwives. Mm -hmm. And so then here we have Deborah. And, you know, ultimately we get to the tomb where the women go to the tomb and they find it empty and go back to the apostles. So these periods of oppression are almost heralded by the women saying, hey, hmm. something's wrong here. And how amazing is that? I mean, we also see with Hannah uh, mm -hmm. getting ready to uh, install the next king. I mean, she gives birth to Samuel, who appoints both the kings. Mm -hmm. And that begins by her going to the temple and or not the temple, but the uh, tabernacle and praying and, and saying, God, this is wrong. So 
this is at this point in time that that Deborah takes center stage. There, there's oppression and it's been terrible. And they, the people aren't just being inconvenienced. And when, when the Bible's talking about oppression, we're talking about forced slavery. We're talking about having all their food taken. We're talking about, uh, you know, the possibility of raids at any point in time. Mm-hmm. The, like I said, this is not what today's Christians think about as oppression. This is not the Starbucks cup. This is not, I, <laughs> it, it, it's not any of those things that we go, oh, they're just being mean to Christians. This is tangible. Your family could die. Yeah. So I think we need to point that out. Um, But now Deborah, uh, verse four, it tells us that she's a prophetess. Actually, we have a lot of information in this verse. She's a prophetess. She's the wife of Lapidoth, and she's judging Israel at this time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, there's this tendency just to kind of slide past all of that. It's like, oh, that's great. Good for her. But nice resume. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the critiques uh, of Deborah is when we talk about the prophets, a lot of times one of the, the unifying factors is the spirit of the Lord comes upon them with power and might and strength and allows them to do these things. We haven't seen it so much with the first three, but we're definitely going to see it with Samson and Gideon. And so uh, a lot of times the, the traditional commentators have said, oh, well, see, Deborah's not really a judge because the spirit of the Lord hasn't come upon her. She's a prophetess. Okay. <laughs> Let's think about that for a second. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't specifically say the spirit of the Lord has come upon her. But yeah. But no, if, if you're a prophet, a prophetess even. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anavia. Yeah. It, it, it makes sense. That the spirit of Lord would be with you, especially if you're a prophet of Israel. Exactly. Because, I mean, you can be prophets of someone else. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So. It's like we don't need the story. And so many of the prophets of Israel, we don't have the story about when they were called to the office. And we don't have that moment. And yet nobody, you know, nobody's going to disqualify Hosea or Micah or Jonah. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, Jonah, we have his story. But any of these prophets, we're not going to disqualify them for the fact that we can't pinpoint this moment. Well, but, <laughs> but you can't, I mean, but you can't use that as your criteria for saying she wasn't a judge or a deliverer or anything of that nature, because just right before where you have, you have Shamgar <laughs> and it never says the spirit of the Lord came upon Shamgar. Precisely. And, and does it even say that about Ehud? Uh, no, well, not Ehud, but it does say it about Othniel. And here's the thing. I, <sighs> Okay, I'm going to get ahead of myself. So I'm going to stop on that point because there is a point I want to make, but I want to get further into the story. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I, I... No, that's okay. Now, as a prophetess, she is one of the three women in the Old Testament who are identified as prophetess um, specifically. We have Miriam mm-hmm. and she, you know, she's there with Moses through all of Exodus. Deborah's the, th- the second and then Huldah. Uh, Huldah is in 2 Kings 22, 14 through 20 for anyone who wants to look that up. Or Second Chronicles thirty four twenty two through twenty eight. So these three women are specifically called by name to be prophetesses of Israel. Okay. Say that three times fast. Now the Talmud adds four more names. They add Sarah, Hannah, Abigail, and Esther for a total of seven. Uh, now the reason why I make that distinction is the Bible never specifically calls Sarah, Hannah, Abigail, or Esther prophetess. By, you know, specifically, the title is never given, but they do function in these roles. Sure. So I I think anybody who reads with a little sensitivity can see how they function in these Mm -hmm. roles. So as a prophetess, she's had this life-changing encounter with God. That is one of the key core components of being a prophet. You Mm -hmm. cannot be a prophet without having God's will revealed to you. Right. You are empowered with wisdom, knowledge, and intelligence. Also, key components of being a prophet. Mm-hmm. So this is this is part of her legacy, and, and also prophets prayed on behalf of the people, and they they desire deliverance for the people. This is Abraham with uh, Pharaoh whenever he had um, given Sarah uh, to to Pharaoh and said, you know, God says this is my prophet. He's going to pray for you. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have that lined up and Deborah, what she wants, she wants the, the deliverance. Abraham wanted the deliverance of Sarah. So this, these are also uniting factors. The Bible never presents her as less than mm-hmm. a prophetess. Uh, 
she's not giving sweet grandmotherly advice underneath this tree. Right. Because I think so often we want to make her all meek and mild because, you know, we're more comfortable with that picture. She's not meek and mild. Right. So. And it says she was judging Israel at the time. If you're judging, because she is specifically called a judge. Yes. And if you're looking at the criteria for what a judge is and what they did, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're looking at, you know, because the, the, the big thing in that, that list, the, one of the first things it says is if there's a murder case, she's, <laughs> right. she's, tr- she's trying property cases. She's trying murder cases. She's, she's well, not just sitting around going, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a little more starch in your <laughs> collar will help you. You know, it's not like. Right. She's not things. giving cleaning she's tips. She's not giving recipes <laughs> for, you know, how to make better eggs or whatever you eat. Yeah, she she's definitely identified with the judge. And and we're going to talk about this because there is a, a connection between her and Samuel. And by the way, the only other judge, because Samuel is a judge, mm-hmm. the only other judge who is judge and prophet in all of the Bible is Samuel. Mm-hmm. So, um, or at least from this period, we're actually going to talk about some past um, connections with Moses, if you hadn't picked that up from the Exodus reading yeah. I asked. Yeah. So the second thing in this list, though, is she's the wife of Lapidoth. Now, uh, just like we had the situation with, was Joseph a um, animal or a plant? Right. We kind of have the same situation here with Deborah. Right. Uh, the traditional Christian translation has her as, as this woman who's married to this guy named Lapidoth. Lapidoth literally means torches. Um. And there's a similarity with torches. And then we've got, you mentioned Barak is one of our leading characters Mm -hmm. at this point. Barak actually means lightning. So the fact that torches being a source of light and then lightning, uh, a lot of commentators have said that Barak and Lapidoth are the same person. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Which would make sense to why he's like, why she's like, (laughs) come on. Yeah. Go do this. It, it does make sense, but at the same time, where she's located and where Barack is, they've got a long-distance relationship going on, if that's the case. Which is very difficult in that time. Precisely. You weren't texting him every five minutes, uh, and he's not texting you. So I think this is more... They don't update on Facebook, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. So. And no FaceTime either. Um, this is kind of a standard uh, introduction of prophetess, prophetesses. Mm-hmm. In the um, in the Old Testament, usually you have the woman's name and then the most significant male relative. So with Miriam, you have sister of Aaron, and that's Exodus fifteen twenty. Mm-hmm. Huldah, wife of Shalom Ben, how you like that name? Uh, Shalom Ben Tikva. Sorry, can't read my own writing. Second Kings twenty two fourteen. Anna, uh, which that's in Luke three two thirty six. She's the wife of Phanuel. So you you do have that formula that you have the name and then the husband. Mm -hmm. The problem with this is we don't have anyone named Lapidoth anywhere. Right. We don't have him in the rest of the Bible. We don't have him in any archaeological records. It's a weird name. Mm -hmm. And typically we can at least have some kind of record. Names get repeated a lot. And so when you have a name that's just random, there's a problem. It's like Junia. I, for so long in, in Acts, everybody wanted to make Junia Junius. They wanted to make it male. We don't have a male Junia anywhere. And the right. Greek says Junia, and that's feminine. And we have the same thing here. Lapidoth is a feminine noun. Okay. And so um, it would be really odd for a man to have a name that's feminine. Sure. And just as easily, the, the word there is a shet. Lapidote, which can be translated woman of torches. Mm-hmm. And this can indicate an attitude, a characteristic, something about Deborah. Mm-hmm. It can also indicate a vocation, which would be in keeping. I mean, Paul's a, a tent maker. Sure. You do not use the Torah as a spade. You don't use it to make your living. Mm-hmm. You have to have some kind of outside in, uh, income. So um, the idea that she would braid uh, wicks and torches, matter of fact, Rashi says that uh, she braided wicks for the tabernacle and okay. they were used in, in worship. Probably didn't happen for reasons you're going to, we're going to find out later. Okay. Um, 
typically when we when we have the mention of a name, it's to establish status. Mm-hmm. It's to to give their position in society. Because we don't have Lapidoth mentioned anyplace else, we don't have him in any genealogies. It doesn't do that. It does not function to give her status or authority. Yeah. And so it it doesn't fulfill the the need that like Miriam's sister of Aaron I mean, that automatically gives Miriam credibility. Right. So it, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit. And then plus, usually whenever you do have the mention of a husband or a significant male relative, not only do you have the male relative, you have the name of the father of the mm-hmm. male relative mentioned somewhere. We don't have that. Right. So Deborah really seems to be a woman independent of anything that we really consider to be significant to women in the Bible. She's, Mm -hmm. she may not be a wife. Her children are never mentioned. She doesn't even have a house that she's taking care of. She's not playing bunko. She's not scrapbooking. She, she's not doing anything stereotypically feminine. Right. And, you know, this causes a, a lot of problems for people who want to see all women used by God as being very, very feminine as we want to define femininity in the Christian world. Sure. So, yeah, she's judging um, Israel, like you were saying earlier at this time. Um, this, this word here, as we, we talked about in the introduction, we're looking at rulers, tribal chieftains, leaders. This is beyond, when we use it of any other judge, we are not talking about someone in a courtroom setting. Right. We're talking about a governing ruler. And if it's going to mean that for Gideon, and if it's going to mean that for Samson and Othniel, then it has to mean the same thing for Deborah. And it, it irritates me that for some reason we want to downgrade this into... Well, I mean, yeah, reasonably so. <laughs> so and so we, we have to, if we're going to practice good exegesis, and I, I, we've got to go back to that, and we, it has to be our standard of study. We do it consistently. Mm-hmm. And so... Furthermore, she is connected to, to Samuel in this judging. Like I was saying, Samuel and Deborah are the only ones who are judges and prophets. And, but we have even more, more points of connection. Okay. Because uh, Saul, I mean, Samuel commissions Saul and David. Deborah commissions Barak. Mm-hmm. Samuel um, guides Saul and David in military conquest and says, this is what God expects of you. Mm-hmm. Deborah's doing the same thing with Barak. Um, she's sitting at a location, this um, verse four, she's at Ramah and Bethel. And 1 Samuel 7, 15 through 17 establishes that this is the location where Samuel is going to be prophesying. He's got like four major places, but two of them were Ramah and Bethel. Hmm. So she's associated with that area. Um, she and Samuel are presented as having direct impact on the entire nation, not just a single or a few tribes. They're one of the few, few judges that the entire nation was supposed to, um, to Rally listen. Yeah. yeah, well, and that's the thing, because when she's judging the sons of Israel and throughout the entire book of Judges, when we talk about the sons of Israel, we're talking about the whole nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We aren't talking about just a, a clan or a tribe. She had an amazing impact and an amazing amount of power of influence that did exceed her own status as a member of a particular tribe, she was able to, to influence the entire nation. Um, and in verse five, she, she's sitting under the palm of Deborah um, between Rama and Bethel. And she's in the, she's technically in the land of Ephraim, but it does note that the entire people of the nation do come to her mm-hmm. and she's sitting this is important. She sat. And I, we talked about this with uh, our introduction episode. Um, sitting indicates status. Right. Sisera literally sits in Harasheth Hagoim. He, he doesn't rule. He doesn't govern. He sits. Mm-hmm. But the idea that is if you sit, then you are ruling and governing. Um, Moses, he sits when he judges the people. That's Exodus 18 and 13. Saul sits for a war council with 600 of his men in 1 Samuel 14 too. So we have this idea that she's being presented 
in the same light as Moses, as Samuel. Uh, mm. She is the, the direct counterpart to Sisera in this event. Gotcha. Yeah. But it, it, it exceeds. And so she, she is amazing in, in what she's accomplishing. Um, and of course, Deborah, the name, uh, we talked about this is, you know, it's B or it relates to Melissa and then the, the Greek idea of prophecy. Mm-hmm. I won't go back over that again because we did talk about that in our Genesis episode right. about Rebecca's nurse, nursemaid who who's buried under the oak of weeping. And so we once again see that connection with the tree, the mm-hmm. name, all of that playing together. And but again, the tree connects her back to Saul and leading uh, forces because where does Saul sit with his men under a pomegranate tree? Gotcha. Okay. (laughs) So, um, but where she's not sitting is just as important as where she is sitting because she's not sitting at Shiloh. She's not sitting at Bethel. Mm -hmm. Now, typically when you have prophets, they're connected to the sacred sites. Sure. Bethel and, and Shiloh, these are the important sacred sites of, of Deborah's day. Why is she not there? Hmm. Uh, that's, I mean, it's, it's a really great question because what we find, and we're going to see this with Hannah, is the women are the ones who are noticing there's a problem in the way we're worshiping. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got you. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She can't be, Deborah can't be associated with these places, or it's going to be like giving her tacit approval of the way they're operating. Right, right. And so the fact that she's outside the gates at her own peril because she doesn't have any protection now. Mm. There's no protection. She really doesn't have the endorsement of the priesthood. She is so far outside of traditional roles that I think we don't recognize just how radical she is. Yeah, well, that that makes sense because there is definitely there's the long. I mean, this kind of kicks off a long-standing tradition of the prophets uh, standing, uh, being outside of the religious order, and speaking back to them about what they're doing wrong, and that goes all the way down through to Jesus. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I you know I think we mentioned this on an episode recently, but I, it's worth mentioning again when Jesus offers words of correction. It's to those within the covenant community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When he's offering kindness and gentleness and sweetness, it's to those outside the covenant community. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but the prophet's role really was to be confrontational, which goes totally against what we've been taught within most churches today. You know, if it's not empowering and it's not sweet and kind, then you you shouldn't say it. And go back and read the prophetic words. Right, right. And that was actually a litmus test for prophets in, in ancient Israel. Were the words kind and sweet on the ears or were they harsh and abrasive? Mm-hmm. If they were too pretty, if they felt too good, then it was probably false prophecy. Yeah. And, and you know, I find it interesting because the, the big counter to that is, well, this, you know, we're talking about New Testament prophecy versus Old Testament prophecy. But I'm always like, uh, who is the, the guy who took Paul's belt and... Oh. And, and tied it around his hands and said, in the same manner, you're going to be bound like this and, and led where you don't want to go. And, you know, I'm like, that's not... How encouraging is that? That's not a very encouraging prophecy. And that definitely <laughs> happened after Jesus ascended. That was in New Testament times. What about Revelation? Yeah, exactly. The entire book of Revelation. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so, it's just so fluffy and flowery. Uh, yeah. I really like the horse called... <laughs> death or horse or, or horse called war yeah it's, a, it's like this is the pet i want to bring home with me it's not my little pony <laughs> <laughs> okay now i just got like the four horses of the apocalypse in but, my little but they're like my little <laughs> <laughs> don't do that to me <laughs> oh my goodness so yeah and so yeah i don't know where this idea came from i i really don't and deborah she's definitely She's not somebody who offers sweet and fluffy. Um, and as a matter of fact, one of the things we find with her is her entire story is about going to war. There, there's no record of her ruling on domestic disputes. Right. We, we have no idea. She may have been doing that, but the, the word judges as being a, a signifier that she was governing it is it, it's huge. 
and the idea of a, a female warrior uh, and a female leader uh, of the nation, that's, that tells us something that the people were open to it. And, and the other thing that's missing here, as if you read through the account, what you find is there's really, there's no mention of her gender, really. Right. It, it's, it's like, it's a non-issue. Sure. And, and a lot of the feminist uh, theologians have made a lot of, out of that, the fact that chapter four, she's a woman, big deal. And they go on with the story. If this was so strange in that time, why aren't we given more explanation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because because biblical writers are very, you know, they're not very quick, but they're often very quick to point out something that's off. Right. And so it, it, and yeah, so it makes sense. The birth of Moses. I mean, we we have this whole narrative of how he was born and raised and and his rise to power Mm -hmm. uh, because it was different. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that there is, there isn't this difference, there isn't this distinction. Now we have, um, we have reason to think that maybe there's more of this going on than what we realized before. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that there's no explanation given. Uh, there's no apology made for it either. Right. And it, this is where I kind of go away from a lot of the traditional commentators who, oh, well, this is an indictment against men who weren't worthy. None of the judges were worthy. Right. God called them and he empowered them and he equipped them to do what they were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. You cannot for one moment tell me Samson was worthy of his position. Well, even go <laughs> even go beyond that. And and you know, none of us are or worthy, worthy, right? You know, no one. The only thing mm-hmm. that makes us worthy is is the blood of Christ, you know, and imputed right. to us as righteousness. But you know, it's yeah, so the idea that God couldn't find any men that were worth doing the job is absurd. It's ridiculous. I, mean, even, I don't know. I, it just doesn't make sense whenever you actually break it down, you know, because no one's worthy. Right. And, and there, there was only one worthy person in the whole world, and, mm-hmm. and that was Jesus. And so, yeah, it, I, I'm with you. Well, because yeah. look at the, the judges up to this point. Othniel is not, I mean, he's part of the covenant community, but he's still an outsider. You know, and um, Ehud, he, he's a deceiver. And mm-hmm. so, and we can go through the whole thing, like I said, until we get to Samson, who is completely messed up, bless his little heart. You know, God was still able to use him. So mm-hmm. are we saying that every man in Israel was worse than Samson? Right. And that's what we're basically saying when we're saying that God couldn't find anyone else. Well, well and again, it's reading this everything backwards it's reading it's reading these stories as though the main point of the story is that person and what they did right it's it's deifying these characters it's making them into superheroes mm-hmm. i mean samson obviously is easy to mistake <laughs> that kind of for a superhero narrative but again it's god saying again and again i'm gonna redeem these people i'm gonna accomplish my goals regardless of how bad people get precisely well and when we lift Deborah out of the narrative and out of the text and we teach her as a standalone story instead of part of a greater story, then it's easy to go, oh, well, it's just because. And we can ignore the evidence Mm -hmm. from the rest of the book. And I think that's where the feminist theologians are saying, hey, this is where the problem is. Mm -hmm. And we need to quit doing this. Now, I do think some of them take it too far. I'm going to be honest about that because women aren't better than men. I'm not going to cross that line. Right. Um, well, there's no, I mean, there's no basis for it. Right. There's no basis for men are better than women. Precisely. <laughs> We're both created in the image of God, and we both, both of the sexes have really messed things up. And I think that, you know, the fact that Deborah is included in this, that's significant, and we need to be proud of that. And we need to be proud of the fact that there's really no critique. There's nothing that she has done that the Bible points out as being contrary to God's desire. Matter of fact, he raises her up. Mm-hmm. And so when God raises her up as, as a judge, that's his seal of approval. He's saying this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so we need to trust that this is a good thing. And then going back to what you were pointing out at the beginning of the episode, the fact that her songs were being taught to the prophets who followed after her, and this was part of their training. The, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I'm trying not to go off on a little rampage based on an article that we read earlier this morning, <laughs> uh, because there's this idea that women should not teach men. Is Deborah's song less important than Moses? Right. And yeah, there, and there's, yeah, there's, there are popular teachers espousing the idea that women should not even be um, uh, te- teaching classes in seminary. Well, this idea or, that or teaching classes at Christian colleges, right? Because let alone like even if it's a even if it's not a, like a pastoral track, yeah, class. Because for some reason, being taught the same information by a woman makes it less worthy than information taught by a man. Uh, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the announcement of the the resurrection of Christ was it any less earth changing than if a man had said it, right? And so you know, we we really have to evaluate comments according to the biblical standard. So, you know, and we went through so many rabbit trails on this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can, we, we can go on for days and days about just yeah. topics and ideas this brings up. And, you know, some of it, some of it, I mean, I want to be honest, some of it is, is kind of just griping. Mm-hmm. I mean, but there's a lot to gripe about, <laughs> but a lot of it is like, let's actually, let's, like you said, if we're going to be consistent mm-hmm. in what we believe on this, and we're going to look at this through, if we're going to look at Deborah's story through the lens of the, how we have, uh, assess all the other judges, mm-hmm. most of whom are not even referred to as judge, right. most of whom are not referred to as a prophet, mm-hmm. most of whom are not uh, ever mentioned, and, you know, a lot of whom are, are, are not mentioned that the Spirit of the Lord even comes upon them. Uh, we're just saying th- these are the people that God used. Yeah. And why? Because he chose them. Because for some reason, he thought they were the right people to carry forth his message. Yeah. And we've got to be consistent. And if we are not consistent, and I don't care whether we're talking about sexual politics or we're talking about salvation or we're talking about historical references, the minute we stop being consistent, we become liars mm-hmm. and we start misrepresenting the Bible. And this is where we lose our integrity and people outside of our faith feel like they can't trust Christians who do that with good reason. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so when we present the word, we want to make sure we're using as much integrity as we possibly can. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and again, I mean, we, and we can look at this book too and say, we can make mistakes. mm -hmm. We can make errors in judgment. Right. But what we can't do is we cannot, we cannot continue in the error once it's pointed out to us. Right. Because, I've made mistakes. I've believed some ridiculous <laughs> things about the Bible in the past, and I probably still do right. in some areas that I just haven't got a chance to explore yet. Because do you know why? Because this book is inexhaustible. Exactly. And so, you know, if I had a right opinion about everything in the Bible, I'd, I'd you know, I'd be dead. But, you know, because <laughs> it's not going to happen this side of, of eternity. That or your brain would explode. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if humanity's uh, capable of dealing with that. Well, and, the, and that's the thing. Um I think that those of us who study the Bible need to be saying, hey, we're willing to learn more. We're willing to entertain new ideas. We may not agree with all the new ideas, but we are at least willing to be taught. Mm-hmm. And how much of the Bible is really pointing us to the importance of being able to be taught? Right. And so I, I think that's kind of one of the things that you and I have valued along the way that a lot of times I felt like hasn't been valued by the church as a whole or the churches that we've been participating in is because I, I want to know more. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. the, the, the deeper revelations of the scripture exceed any cliches and any pat answers that we can give someone. And this is the reason why you can't just post something on Facebook and go, Oh, I expect the world to be changed. Sure. It's got to be done through relationship and these ongoing conversations and they take a while mm-hmm. and they, it, it, I mean, we didn't even, I figured we'd get through chapter four today. We didn't. So, <laughs> right. No, I, I didn't expect to get through chapter four today at all. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot, again, like you said, there's a lot more to learn. And, and whenever, and I, I think we've kind of made this mistake that we assume people should have certain answers that should never be questioned. Mm-hmm. But the reason that we do that is because we're looking for these answers to be our foundation. Mm-hmm. And we're not laying a solid foundation. We're not we're not laying a solid foundation in one, a lot of times just the truth of the gospel message and Mm -hmm. what Jesus has done for us. We're not, we're not putting that up to show, um, even, you know, we're not, we're not diving into the old Testament because we're still, we're scared of it. We're still 
trying to figure out the New Testament. <laughs> right. and, and, you know, even Paul even says it was, or not Paul, was it Paul or the writer of Hebrews who's basically like, um, let's get beyond, let's, 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 you know, the basics are great, but let's get beyond the basics. We can actually start studying and figuring out what the Bible's about. If, if, I'm paraphrasing. I'll have to look at that. Yeah, up. you're we'll paraphrasing put, so much I don't recognize it. We, we will put it in the show notes. Um, <laughs> I, I promise it's there. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it's this, this idea that we get, we camp out and because we're not even sure of the foundation, we just keep going back to these basic truths and still trying to convince ourselves Mm -hmm. to the point where our foundation is so shaky that we can't even examine the, the peripherals. Well, I, I'm convinced that 90% of religious arguments are not about convincing the other person. It's about finding some sort of validation in other person, other people's agreements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we aren't arguing to convince other people. We're arguing to convince ourselves and reassure ourselves that we might be right. Right. And the moment you really start to rest in the Bible and accept it as it is and saying, hey, God's got this figured out. He's going to reveal to me what I need to know as I pursue him. And, you know, I do my part in study and I'm open to, to being taught. God will reveal to me what I need to know. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how many times you don't have to engage in the argument. Yeah. You really don't have to push other people to agree with you because other people's agreements, it, it, it's so much less than God's joy mm-hmm. and the fact that you're pursuing him. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I got to say, uh, you know, I started, you know, I, you and I have been studying the Bible all of our lives. Um, whenever you got to seminary and I started borrowing all of your books. <laughs> And we started getting into some of the stuff that's a lot more out there and a lot more crazy. And that I have, I've, you know, I've changed my perspective on hundreds of things in the Bible. Not a single one has ever diminished what I think of God. And so that's the thing. If we are actually studying the Bible correctly, Mm -hmm. then yeah, we're, it's, it's not going to diminish our view of God. And so many people are, I think are afraid that, you know, if we do start looking at the violence of Judges and Samuel and different things like that, well, what are we going to find? Well, it's going to destroy, because, I, I mean, okay, so <laughs> we, we were in a group, and, and someone asked, that they were talking to a friend, uh, I, we didn't get a name, uh, you know, it's not our business, it's not our story necessarily, but I'm going to tell the, this bit, but this person asked, um, I had a friend say that reading the Old Testament destroyed my faith. Mm-hmm. What do I say to that? And I'm like, well, Talk to them about what their faith was. Did they just believe in a happy, flowery, fluffy, right. everything, you know, is all good times and rainbows and mm-hmm. kittens? Or did they really believe what the Bible said about God to begin with? Because, yeah, if, if your belief is that God's just kind of this passive, you know, always happy kind of character, then, yeah, reading the Old Testament is going to destroy that view of God. And reading the Old Testament will destroy that view of God mm-hmm. in a, in a good way or a bad way in a way that can right. reassure your faith or a way that can can destroy it and it could and, but for me it's always been like oh God's able to deal with so much more than we think He can well and I I think that's the thing when people start reading the Old Testament if you just do a surface level reading mm-hmm. and you don't really press in and go okay God I need to figure this out I need help I need resources I need to learn more so this makes sense to me then definitely that's, I think that's where a lot of people's faith becomes shipwrecked. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for anybody who's listening, if, you know, your faith has been like destroyed because you've confronted this Old Testament God who seems big and scary. Okay. Feel that. That's Mm -hmm. fine. Don't, don't try to deny that that's going on, but keep pressing in, keep, keep pushing forward. And I, I can guarantee you because I've lived it, that mm-hmm. as you as you press forward, it's going to unravel in a way that the awe and the wonder and God's holiness is going to be revealed that in ways you didn't expect. Yeah. Well, and to me, it's it's you know to me, I kind of think of it like this: is it's the it's you know it's like Jesus talking about the 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 rock and the sand, mm-hmm. you know, building a house on the rock or the sand. We're like, I think of it like you know, you're building a beach house because we're going to build a house, we might as well build a nice one. Sure. On a beach, so. But no, if you're, if you're building like, you know, let's say you've built your little beach house, but it's, it's on the sand mm-hmm. and then you start to, to work on it and it collapses under its own weight because the, the foundation's not there. Keep 
going <laughs> right. and put your peers through the sand into the foundation. That's good. Into the bedrock. And so that's that's kind of like what I was thinking, because I've, I've known of some popular Christian teachers who they start asking these questions mm-hmm. and they go off the rails because they didn't go far enough. Right. They, they so. stopped when things got scary. So, yeah. So that all is free. Um, <laughs> We'll return to so, Deborah next week. <laughs> yeah, we'll get back to Deborah next time. Sorry, I I kind of went on a on a tangent, but um, if you do want the stuff that's not free, patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. I'm kidding. No, if you if you like what we've we've uh, I'm kind of mostly kidding, but if you like what you've heard and you want to help keep this going, uh, we are fully listener supported. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps keep our our hosting fees paid up, and um. We would like to be able to also, you know, eventually bring this in so we have some more time. Um, right. So if you have, uh, you know, if you happen to know a rich benefactor, just send, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I'm getting way off track. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for being here. If you want to be part of the conversation um, or if you do have questions, if your faith is shaky, message Emily or, uh, <laughs> or message us. We, we can talk. Uh, we can't be pastoral to, to, to you. We'll encourage you to seek some some leadership that's local who can help you out and walk through this with you. We try to point out good resources and, mm-hmm. and you know, we can pray and encourage and maybe offer some counterpoints. But yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, hit us up Raven Creek SC on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, that's where you can be part of the conversation and get connected with us. And again, if, if it's a problem that's too big for us to deal with online, we will try to to find some people local to you. We've got friends all over the United States, all Absolutely. over the world, actually. And well, yeah, we're international. We're, I mean, and that's just you know people that we know and have relationships with, various missionaries, things like that. But uh, so RavenCreekSC.com will get you to show notes, the resource page, and the other Raven Creek shows, commentarians. And again, we just added changed my mind. It's a great show with uh, award-winning author Luke T. Harrington. Yes, and um, so. Thank you again for joining us, and we will be very excited to get back to Deborah next week. So have a great one. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.